lids come off those boxes, you've never seen such pure joy. This is amazing, as you can see, the children's faces, they are excited as they open up the gifts for the first time. What makes the gifts more than just gifts is the message that comes with the gift. This is the opportunity for a child to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. The mission of Operation Christmas Child never changes. Children are coming to Jesus, and children are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Millions of children around the world are being impacted by these simple shoebox gifts. One box can touch not just a child, but the whole family. So we need to keep packing those boxes and pray for the children that God will use this in a very special way. So thank you for being a part of it. God bless you. Good morning. Every year we are involved with Operation Christmas Child, and we have had the goal in the past of packing 200 boxes. We fell short last year. I would love to see us uh, reach that goal of 200 boxes. One of the things that you come to know if you go to the warehouse in Atlanta, which we do every year uh, with the youth, um, there are, these boxes are literally going all around the world, and every single box uh, has a gospel tract in it in a language in which um, uh, the kids uh, live. And so it's just one of those opportunities for us to um, see the gospel go around the world and to participate. And I would encourage you to take a box when you leave today. They are in the foyer. If you did not see these boxes in the foyer, you were sleepwalking. So please pick up a shoebox or two if you'd like to. Inside the shoebox, uh, there are suggested items to pack. If you go outside of the suggested items, it's probably going to be a problem. One of the things that you would not know if you have not been is quite a bit of time is spent taking things out of the shoeboxes that will not uh, transport. So I encourage you to uh, take the boxes and then go by the slip that's in the boxes in terms of suggestions for things to pack for these children. It's hard to believe that children can be so excited about those little things around the world. Um, it takes a lot for our kids to get excited here in the United States, that's for sure. Um, I remember going on a, a trip to Belize years ago, and we brought tennis balls. And we had kids following us. In, we were in a bus, and we were throwing out tennis balls. These kids were running just to get a yellow tennis ball. Can you imagine any of our students today running behind a bus ready to receive a yellow tennis ball? I can't. But it's amazing what these kids get excited about and we get to be a part of this opportunity, so I trust that you'll take a box as you leave today. Well, it would be beneficial if we read where we're going to, so I need you to go to 1 John. You remember that book, 1 John, in chapter 2. 1 John 2. It will be helpful if we read this before I come back up. Um. Next Sunday, I will not be here. 
Uh, I have a wedding to do out of town uh, next weekend. In fact, on Saturday, just so you're familiar with how your Saturday is going to go, on Saturday you'll wake up and you'll anticipate a football game about 2.30. And about 5.30 that afternoon, Luke and Sydney will be getting married. And at 5.50, I expect to pronounce them husband and wife. And at 6 o'clock, I expect the kick to go through the uprights and we will beat Alabama. So that's exactly how my Saturday is outlined to go. Although I'm not quite certain it will happen that way completely. Um, And then Van Cook. One of our elders, Pastor Van, will be speaking next Sunday. And so I just wanted to kind of give you a heads up to that. He's a wonderful Bible teacher. I know you'll really enjoy your time uh, with him next Sunday. I wanted to uh, prepare us for what we will look at in our series for the next couple of weeks, this week and then two weeks from now, as we look at the last time. And I want you to take your Bibles and go to 1 John 2. We'll begin reading in verse 18. And we will go through verse 27. So if you'll just stand as we read the word of God together. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist, singular, is coming, even now many Antichrist, plural, have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown or demonstrated that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have, written, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. and The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has uh, taught you, you abide in him. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray uh, together. So, Father, um, thank you for another day of life, for an opportunity again to gather together um, to worship you. I pray for those in this building who know you that um, today would be truly just a, uh, a time of uh, honest reflection 
about uh, where we are in our fellowship with you. And for those that are without you, I pray that today that could be the day of salvation where, Father, they would come to know your Son, uh, Jesus Christ, as their Savior. For our time together in, in uh, song and in the Word, I just pray that, um, that Lord, you would be glorified. And all this I pray in the wonderful name of Christ. Amen. Such a deep, deep love of Jesus that touches the depth of my soul and makes me so ever thankful. Praise God, he made me whole. Who took the defilement of my sin and washed it in his blood and released my heart by giving forgiveness so that I could truly worship God and introduced a prayer of faith to lead me to salvation as my heart cried out to God to release me from sin's prison. And God Almighty in His grace delivered mercy's stream and forgiveness's fount of blessings revealed. I was redeemed. Hallelujahs were warranted for the sinner saved by grace who finally came to her senses and sought the Savior's face. Praise God for my new ownership. I know I'm a child of God. My inheritance awaiting on the other side when these feet touch heaven's sod. Oh,
sing about that wonderful grace. Grace alone. It's only 
That's hard to speak after a song like that. But good morning, sisters and brothers. Uh, We came together this morning in this service to worship. All aspects of what we do together is worship to our God and Father. We just finished one aspect of worship as we lifted our voices in song to our King. In a moment, we'll participate in worship, another part of worship, the hearing of God's word preached and taught by our pastor. But before we join, but before that, join me together as we worship the Lord through prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great grace that we just sang about. We also thank you that we can call you our Father. And we can only do that because of the relationship we have with you through your Son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you that we know through your word that you have been known by many names. Creator, Sustainer, Provider, God Almighty, so many others. Help us to remember that your name is also holy. We thank you that your kingdom is coming. We long for that day and can say with John, even so come, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you are working your will in heaven and on earth. Father, we are faced with many concerns, whether it be related to health, loss of a loved one, family, or finances. Help us to trust you as our sovereign God with these and many other situations that you will be working your will in your way and in your time. We thank you, Father, for all that you have given us and trust that as our provider, you'll continue to give us daily what we need. Thank you. You know what we want, but it's our needs that you supply. Father, we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, we thank, and his death on the cross for our sins, not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Thank you that as we trusted in that finished work on the cross, our sins were forgiven, and we became forever a part of your family. However, we continue to sin and break our fellowship with you. So we confess our sin now to you, Father, be it wrong words, actions, thoughts, or motives. Thank you for your faithfulness to forgive and cleanse. Father, you also tell us to forgive others. So when we are hurt by another's words or action, help us by the power of the Holy Spirit and your grace to forgive quickly so that whether or not that person ever comes to ask forgiveness, we do not allow a root of bitterness to form in our hearts. Father, daily we are tempted by the evil one to sin against you or someone else. So Father, don't leave us there and deliver us. Help us to be sensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, and run away. Father, you tell us to pray for those in authority over us. So we pray now for our president, Mr. Biden, our vice president, Ms. Harris, our Supreme Court, our Congress, for our governor, our state, county, and city leaders. We pray that you would meet the needs in their lives, and you know what they are. 
And Father, that you would work in and through them your will. And we pray, Father, that your will will be done in the upcoming election. Father, we pray now for our pastor. Work in and through Thad by your spirit as he shares your word with us this morning. In all this, Father, we thank you for what you have done through history and in our lives, for what you are doing and how you are working now, and for what you will be doing in the future and for eternity. Thank you again that we can trust you, Holy Father. Through Christ we pray these things. Amen. tend to be people who are for or against something. And in our culture, um, we every day are faced with that decision, are we for something or against something? We'll start out with some simple illustrations. I am for steak. I am against liver. I am for Texas peat hot sauce. I am against most others. I am for respect. I am against disrespect. I am for truth. I am against falsehood. I am for Christ. Are you? One of the most difficult things to determine at times if, is, is someone for or against Christ? It's interesting to me that John here as he comes to this section, really presents two things. Those who are for Christ and those who are against Christ. Just to remind you, we have been in the book of 1 John discussing the issue of fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. I remind you that there are different viewpoints in 1 John. There are some that hold to a relationship viewpoint, a test of relationship viewpoint. And there are others who hold to a fellowship viewpoint. That First John was written as a test of one's fellowship. Are you in fellowship with the Lord? And that's where I land the plane. But I am also respectful of my brothers who have the other view. I'm also, as I've studied through 1 John, convinced that while John's primary focus is on fellowship for the believer, which is something we need to think more about than we might currently, woven within the book itself are challenges and promises as it relates to our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. As we come to this section of Scripture, we need to be reminded that as John has dealt with these fellowship issues, he's talked about the fact that sin interrupts fellowship. 
you know how that works. You're going along in your Christian life and then you come to a point where there's a bump in the road and you're out of fellowship. We use that phrase a lot, out of fellowship with the Lord. And, and when we use the phrase, we assume that there is sin that has gotten us out of fellowship with the Lord. That's a good assumption. It doesn't mean that our relationship with him has changed because once we are in Christ, the Bible says that we are forever in Christ. But that fellowship issue is very, very important. I am Herb Blunt's son. I will forever be Herb Blunt's son. But at times, our fellowship has not been what it should be. So that's something for us to think about, that sin interrupts fellowship. That disobedience, as John talks about, interrupts fellowship. The Lord desires us to obey him. That's hard to do, isn't it? Because there's a battle that is ongoing in our lives, and that's the battle between the spirit and the flesh. And you remember, even in Paul's own writings in Romans, he struggled with that whole issue of spirit and flesh. There are things that he desired to do, which was please the Lord, right? But every once in a while... Paul would get in a point in his life where obviously he struggled because the battle was against the flesh. In fact, he says in Romans, the very things I don't want to do, I what? I find myself doing those things. Could you write that? I know I could (laughs) in my life. So there's disobedience that can interrupt fellowship. Hating your brother interrupts fellowship. I think we prove from the context of the passage that He's indeed talking about believers that one can hate their brother. We think of hatred as being almost an ambiguous term, something that we can't even define. But, but even avoidance of a brother or sister can be a form of hatred. And I think all of us understand the issue of hatred toward our brother or sister in Christ. And so hate, hatred toward our brothers and sisters interrupts fellowship. Um, loving the world and the things in the world interrupts our fellowship with the Lord. We're not to love the world nor the things in the world, but if you wake up every day, you're battling what? Loving the world and the things in the world. Having them as priority even over the things of the Lord. It's a very difficult issue. That can interrupt fellowship with the Lord for certain. And then being influenced by false messages can certainly interrupt fellowship with the Lord. Now, what John's going to discuss here in this particular section is a real issue that those outside of Christ struggle with. But there are issues within Christianity that at times we may be even influenced in a manner in which we should not be. Like, for example, there are Christians... Christians who believe that you can lose your salvation. Do you believe that Christians can lose their salvation? Answer, I don't. Do you? The Bible is very clear that we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. Okay? That once we come to Christ, we're in Christ. That's never going to be changed. But there are people out there who... Uh, advocate a doctrine that one can lose their salvation. In fact, I know 
several believers, believing friends, who advocate that doctrine? Do they influence people? Answer? Yes. Now, for those of us who sit in a position of, I've got my doctrine all buttoned up, we have a problem with that. We say, hold on a second. You're influencing people in the wrong direction, which is true. So I think once we come to the point of understanding that doctrine is essential and that standing on the Word of God is essential, then we must, for ourselves individually, determine what are the things that God has said about Himself, about the Son, about the Spirit, about salvation, about all these different things that I am not going to compromise on like the deity of Christ, like the virgin birth of Christ, all those essential doctrines. Well, there are some doctrines in which people can be influenced in the wrong direction. I'm going to mention this later on, but that's why it's so imperative that we are always in the Word of God, that we're always being challenged in the Word of God, that we are always involved in Bible studies, that we're always involved, right, in being assembled together to hear the Word of God. And so in this section, he's going to deal with those who are advocating a false message that's against Christ. It's interesting that as John does that, do I have my PowerPoint? Thank you, Lord. He begins with discussion around the Antichrist. Um, let's look at verse 18 together, okay? He says, children, it is the last hour. Now, the word children there, remember there's two different words in 1 John for children. One is technion, that means born ones. The majority of the usage in 1 John when it comes to children is technion, which means born ones. Those who belong to the Lord. Okay? There are a few times in 1 John when he uses the word paideon, which means learners, those who need to learn. That's the word he's using right here. So not only do they belong to the Lord, but they need to be learners. He just assumes you're a learner. Um, All of us in this room are learners that belong to the Lord. So he says, children, it is the last hour. Now, that phrase, last hour, describes the time period between the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ. That's the broad definition. When one thinks of antichrist, where is one's mind drawn immediately? To the end times, to the last days. Um, we are living in the last days, in the last time. And you know what? We have been. The apostles lived in the last time. You remember Peter's like, in, as he's writing to the believers in Second Peter, those who were um, attacking them, those who were questioning them, they're like, Asking the question, or yeah, asking the question, where is the promise of his coming? Right? If we're living in the last hour, uh oh, 
Where's Christ? Well, that's not a problem. Because even in 2 Peter, we're told that to the Lord, a day is as what? A thousand years and a thousand years as a day. And we come to understand in the scriptures that time is more for us. Right? And so as we think about the last time, we think about the events between the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ. It's very important. I used to think everybody understood what advent meant, second advent, first advent. And then I began to discuss things with people in other churches and have come to realize that people just talk about his coming as one time. Then when he comes again, they're just talking about him coming, getting Christians and taking us to heaven. But if you study the scriptures, there is another coming. And by the way, you like that there is another coming because of what the scripture tells us in 1 Thessalonians and John and 1 Corinthians. He is coming for his bride. Okay, So the next event on the calendar of our Lord is the coming of Jesus for his bride, which is the church. And so there are some that just put all that together. Well, that's a problem for us because we understand the end times or the last days. And we understand from the scriptures what's going to transpire. And you know what? So did these guys. They understood. In fact, notice what it says in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard, past tense. They've already heard this. All right? They already know these things. It makes one think that eschatology is somewhat of an elementary subject. It's not. But that it was just the norm for the believer in the early church to know that the next thing on the, the calendar of the Lord was the rapture of the church. And that subsequent to the rapture of the church would be a seven-year period of time on the earth called the tribulation period. And there would be one that would come and set himself up as the false Messiah who would be anti-Christ. And they understood that there would be at the end of the uh, tribulation period the battle of Armageddon. And Christ would subsequently come to the earth and defeat the Antichrist and rule and reign on the earth for 1,000 years. So when you read this, please understand that these believers that John is writing to understood the language here. They understood Antichrist. Notice it says, it is the last hour and just as you heard that Antichrist singular is coming. Even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. So let's deal with his initial term antichrist there's it's really important to understand that the term anti has two definitions you see that antichrist the term anti can mean in opposition to or it can mean in place of that's very important now when it comes to the antichrist he is in opposition or will be in opposition to the christ the true Messiah, the true Son of God. But he's also coming 
as one who will be in place of Christ and will set himself up as a false messiah. So it's important to understand that, that there are two different definitions there, and we'll discuss more about that as we go. The Antichrist is mentioned like in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, chapter 7, he's called the little horn. In 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, he's called the man of lawlessness and son of perdition. And in Revelation 13, he is called the beast. And over 30 times in the book of Revelation, you have a reference to the beast. You know what's sad to me? It seems that we could even maybe say, you notice how I worded that, even maybe say that Christians are more infatuated with the coming of the beast than they are the coming of Christ. I was studying that this week. I was like, yeah, you hear a lot of conversation, don't you? Especially in the last three years because the world's kind of been... You know, upside down. People are going, well, I guess the Antichrist, man. I wonder who he is. I mean, how many years has there been a guess about who is the Antichrist? Year after year after year after year. Well, I think maybe we ought to be like John the Apostle and think about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. J. Dwight Pentecost, just one more thing about this. J. Dwight Pentecost says, Antichrist refers to a person who will appear on the earth in the end time. After the translation of the church into glory. And we are glad of this because as you read the book of the Revelation, you see all the destruction that's coming. And you, you have to be, as a child of God, going... Thank you, Lord, that I'm not going to be around. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not going to be around. Now, some of you will be, if you don't know the Lord here today. Some of you may be. Pentecost goes on to say, This person will gain worldwide political and religious power that will constitute him and the world's ruler as the world's ruler and God. He is a false messiah that the Lord will judge and destroy at his second advent. So yes, he, he will come on the scene. But what's his end? Destruction. Okay? Um, so he refers here to the Antichrist. But that's not where he lands the plane. If you want more discussion about the Antichrist, you read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And Paul spends an enormous amount of time talking about the Antichrist. But John's point primarily is to talk about the Antichrist plural. Notice in verse 18b and verse 19, he speaks about Antichrist plural. Notice what he says. Even now, many Antichrists. Again, the definition anti, those who are opposed to, those who have put in place of Christ something else. They have appeared, he says. In fact, Jesus talks about false Christ appearing in the last days. People who will call themselves Messiah. There will be many that advocate a false message. He says, even now many antichrists have appeared 
From this we know it is the last hour. So that's one of the ways that we know that we're living in that last hour. There are many who have set themselves up as false Christ with a different message, who advocate a false message. Notice what John says. This is interesting. They went out from us, but they were really not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out. So that it would be evident that they all are not of us. It's very important that you listen to what I'm about to talk to you about. Okay, This is very, very critical. First thing I want to say to you about these antichrist plural that uh, are described here in 1 John is that they leave Christians. Now there's a reason that I use the term Christians. You could even say they leave believers. Okay? But they leave Christians. Because the question becomes in terms of us, who is John referring to? Now you have to be careful because he's, he, he gets to the point in the next verse where he speaks and he says you. And he's talking about paideon, those who belong to the Lord who are learners. But who, are, who is he referring to here when he says they went out from us? Well, let me just give you a couple of different viewpoints. Some believe that he's talking about himself as an apostle and the other apostles. That initially, when the church was established, and you had the apostles preaching and advocating for Christ and the gospel of Christ, there were some who were in that crowd who left and became anti-Christ. Okay? That's one possibility. The other possibility is that these are people who were within the church at Ephesus where John was a part of. That's the other viewpoint. Well, I look at this and I go, well, I'm not 100% sure. My leaning is toward the apostles. But he could be referring to the believers that he is writing to, that there were some in their midst who rose up and who left. Because notice it says, these antichrists, it says they went out from us. Then at the end of the verse, but they went out so that it would become evident that they are not all of us. So it would be like this, okay? We're in an assembly right now. Now, you would have some that would come up and stand on this stage and say, this morning we have a gathering of the church. Is that true? Are false. We have a gathering. That's true. We have an assembly of people here. That's true. We also have within the assembly of the people the church. True or false? True. We have people here. You can look around the room, you can see them. There are several people that are assembled here today. But within the assembly, we have those belonging to Christ. Okay? So if John is talking about the apostles, he's just saying, hey, they went out from us who are identified with Christ. 
But if he's talking about just an assembly, like we think of assembly, there may have been some within the assembly who would rise up and depart who were not a part of the church. You say, that's kind of odd. Well, really? Listen to this. Remember when Paul told the Ephesian elders at Miletus these words? Even from your own midst men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. We would be naive to think that everyone that is assembled across the country today that are in churches are a part of the church. There are many assembled today. But within the assembly, how many truly... Now, this sounds kind of odd and awkward and it makes you kind of move your shoulders around. Or anti-Christ. Or against Christ. Or they have a belief that's in place of Christ. So, John says about these, they left the Christians. They left those belonging to Christ. Like I said, whether he's referring to the apostles or to the church here that was gathered in Ephesus, we don't know. All right, so that's the first characteristic of Antichrist. They leave. In the last three years, there have been major departures from the assembly. True or false? True. Of the departures, I'm quite certain there are those that are believers. But it makes me wonder if there are some that were truly sitting in assemblies like this who are against Christ. You say, Thad, is that really possible? Possible. Absolutely possible. You know, there was one that was assembled with the disciples. Assembled with the disciples for a long period of time. Walked with the Lord Jesus Christ. Was a part of his team. But he arose up and did what? He left. What was his name? Judas. I know this is hard to hear. It's a hard truth. But I think it would be very naive to assume that within the assembly of people, number one, everybody belongs to Christ. And number two, there aren't people who may be from time to time sitting in an assembly who are against Christ. We know the world's against Christ. Hello? All we got to do is watch the news. We know that. We see it. And there are people who call themselves Christians who are against Christ. You say, they really are? They really are. Because of the way he describes them here in 1 John. So they leave Christians. The second thing we see about them is we find here in verses 22 and 23 that they have a wrong view of Christ. These antichrists have a wrong view of Christ. Where do we get our view of Christ? The Word of God. How many of you have, over the years, received your view of Christ 
through the Word of God. How many of primarily through the Word of God? Let me say it that way. How many of you have primarily been dependent on teachers to receive your view of Christ? How many of you have primarily been dependent on the Spirit of God to get your view of Christ? Now there's a difference. I'm not saying we shouldn't have sound teachers that teach the truth... But what I'm saying is that sometimes it might even be possible that we're too dependent on someone else for a view concerning Christ. You know what I believe? I believe what the Bible says about Christ. I believe that He is God. He is God's Son. That He came to earth and He took on flesh and he dwelt among men, and he lived a perfect life. I believe that he went to the cross at Calvary, and that he shed his blood, and that he was buried, and that there was a bodily resurrection. Very critical. Not everybody believes that. And I believe that he's coming again. For at least me, I hope he's coming for you this morning as well. I'm quite confident many of you are going up as well. Who is the liar? Notice what it says. They have a wrong view of Christ. Who is the liar except the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. First of all, he says, the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ is a liar. He's an antichrist. The the word Christ there is the term Christos in the Greek. Christos. Um. Christos is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew term Messiah. So, when it says here that the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ is the liar, they are denying that Jesus was the anointed one, the Christos. And the way that we need to think of the Christos is we need to think about his work. Because the Christos came to do what? Save his people from their sins. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. Remember that John has just told them about the Antichrist. And he will come and set himself up as a pseudo-Messiah to be worshipped. I find it interesting that There are different points in which Jesus reveals that he is the Messiah. The religious leaders reject it. But there's an illustration of it that I have to have you turn to. Because I'm always interested. I'm one of those guys. I love looking at things that are kind of outside the lines. Where you might not think, well, Jesus is going to reveal himself in this way to this particular person. Instead of it being revealed to a person who's kind of 
you know, raggedy and looks, doesn't look the part. You know, he's going to reveal himself as the Messiah just to the religious leaders, but that's not the truth. That's not the truth at all. In fact, I want you to turn back with me to John chapter 4. I want you to see this. We're going to read a few verses, so you'll need to turn back to the passage. Otherwise, you'll just go to sleep right where you are. It's interesting to me that the comparison and contrast between the, the conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus in chapter 3 and the conversation he has with the woman at the well in chapter 4. Um, we're going to pick the story up in verse 19 of chapter 4. The woman said to him, Sir... I perceive that you are a prophet. Because pretty much he's just unveiled everything about her, right? We know that to be true. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Notice this. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. Isn't that interesting? I know the anointed one's coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am. I'm the one. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Because she had understanding. But she doesn't know who she's with. And he says to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm the Messiah. I'm the anointed one. I'm the one that's going to save. Now do you see, any other message outside of Jesus being the Savior is a false message. In our culture, there's so many salvation messages, we'd be here all day. Notice what it says, though. Verse 27, at this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, (laughs) yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. Proving his what? Omniscience. This is not the Christ, is it? Is this the anointed one? Now we have to remember, we have to put ourselves in the mindset of the people in that culture and what they were looking for. The Messiah. Well, 
John says, who is the liar except the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? And on several occasions in the Gospel of John, Jesus shows himself not only to be the Christ, but to be God. There is one passage you're very familiar with, but I want you to turn to it too. Please don't fall asleep as you turn to it. I don't typically have you turn a whole lot of places, but this morning it's good for you to do that. Peter's confession of Christ in Matthew 16. It says, now when Jesus came, Matthew 16 verse 13, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Hey, what's the rumor? Who do they say I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, it's one thing to say, what do they say? It's another thing to look at them. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who am I? And Simon Peter answered, you are who? Christ, the Christos. You're the Christos. The son of the living God. Woo! What a moment. You are the anointed one. You are the Messiah. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. No other man revealed this to you. But my father did. Who is in heaven? My Father did. Who is in heaven? When I was in Israel, 1994, it's one of the greatest trips I've ever been on. I would encourage you to go. I know it costs money, but go. We had tour guides when we were in Israel. And the tour guide that we had, every single place we went to that was attached to the Old Testament, this dude knew forwards, backwards, upside down. Their issue is not with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Are you listening to me? The issue is Jesus Christ. So all through the tour, we've got this guide, and he is just, man, we're on, I remember we, we were on uh, Mount Carmel, and he is just going through that story like no pastor I've ever heard. I mean, he is just, well, tour goes on for four or five days, and we were in Jerusalem, and he said, look, uh, I know it's very special to you. Jesus, but I don't believe he's the Messiah. And my heart was crushed. I was like, I've never met a pastor who could outline the Old Testament like this dude. But he doesn't know Jesus. I'm like, oh my goodness. And so he didn't go with us. We had another tour guide. My heart was so burdened for this guy. I was like, oh. I was like, Lord, I mean, 
How does this happen? He just can't see. He knows so much about the God of the Old Testament. But he's missed out on the prophecies concerning the Christ. How did that happen? The last day on the tour, we had gotten a Bible together and with the New Testament. Yeah, the 27 books that he did not look at. Now, he knew a little bit about the Gospels, but he didn't, he didn't talk about it a whole lot. I was like, I just kept telling Phil, I was like, Phil, a friend of mine, pastor friend, I said, we've got to do something for this guy. He needs to know Christ. He needs to know the Messiah's already been here. He's coming back again, but he's already been here once to die for his sins and mine and everybody else's. And so, everybody in the tour, there were probably 30 of us, and everybody spoke to him, and then I, I, I waited. I was calculating, I'm like, I'm going to be the last one to speak to this guy. And I just went up to him, and I, I can't remember his name. I said, I'm just so burdened for you. He said, you are? Of course, he had the accent. I was like, yeah. He said, Why? I said, because you can't see that the Messiah has already been here. He put his hand on my shoulder and he said, thank you for your concern. And that was it. That'll hit you. It's one thing for us to talk about the Messiah. But for the Jew to talk about the Messiah, it's quite another thing. So Peter here says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, ain't you a mint? We're getting there. The second part of it is that they not only deny that Jesus is the Christ, but they deny that he is God's Son. They don't see the the fact that Jesus is God. And this is what it says in 23. He says, This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. And then he builds his argument, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. So in other words, you can't say, I believe in the Father, but not have the Son. He says, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So he's talking about the fact that Jesus is God. They're denying the fact that Jesus Christ is God. So young people today, I ask you, who is Jesus Christ? Is he God? Answer, yes. The Bible's clear on that. In the Gospel of John, there's so many different illustrations. But I think one of the greatest illustrations of the fact that indeed Jesus Christ is God, and you don't need to turn there, I'll just turn and read it. But it's Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And it's in the context of Jesus' baptism. Listen to these words. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water... And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So these that John talks about denies 
that Jesus is the Messiah, and they deny that Jesus is God, which Scripture clearly teaches to us that He is God. And several times, as you know, the religious leaders had an issue with this and in conversations with Jesus because He was always equating Himself with the Father. You remember in John, He says, I and the Father are what? We're one. We're one in essence. But they denied that. They did not believe that. You know, there are people in our world that are the same. They have the same message as that. They don't believe that Jesus Christ is God. I'm going to show you a video in just a minute that's going to show you kind of uh, what people in our culture think of Jesus Christ. So let's, show, let's go ahead and show that van right now. I can't believe the time. Let's go. You got to back up just a little and turn up the volume, please. Historical figure? I don't know. Thank you. They asked the question about who is Jesus. Video was made five years ago. Historical figure? I don't know. I think he was just a person. I don't know. Just a normal person like us. He was a selfless person. I have no clue. He was a man. I think he was marketing genius because he got people to believe him. I don't. I don't think he's the son of God. I don't, don't believe that at all. If David Copperfield was in the day of Jesus, he would be Jesus. I'm pretty sure he existed. Like I'm not gonna say that he didn't exist. He was God's son, but so was Gandhi, and so was Muhammad, and so was you know. We're all God's children. Jesus is someone I pray to. Well, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Um, and he, to me, is the like symbol of just ultimate forgiveness and ultimate love. He's sort of that like constant figure in my life. Jesus is also Isa in Arabic, and he was a messenger as well. He was just extremely enlightened, like religiously and morally. Was somebody that um, just tried to um, impart wisdom on others and um, make the world a better place. I think he saw something that a lot of people didn't see and still don't see in others. And I, I think that's just a lot of love and, and hope. Jesus sort of seemed like an ominous uh, figure. You know, he just, he, he was God and it was hard to relate to him. But I think as I've grown in my faith a lot, I've really started to see Jesus as my closest friend. All right, so there are a lot of different viewpoints about who Jesus is. And if we were to like do a survey, even in the city of Birmingham, you're going to have all kinds of different answers to that. Um, so in John, in this particular section, he's warning these believers about those who deny the Christ, deny that Jesus is the Son of God. And then there's another passage, and we'll deal with it more in detail when we get to it. First John 4, they deny the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. Notice First John 4, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So do you believe in the incarnation of Jesus Christ? That Jesus Christ took on flesh and dwelt among men? See, that's a very significant doctrine. That Jesus Christ was raised bodily is a significant doctrine. Paul calls him the first fruits of the resurrection. It's him first, 
and then us. In fact, John's going to talk about that in chapter 3 when he says, We are children of God, it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. And so, they have a wrong view of Christ. They leave the Christians, and then thirdly, and this is not a long point um, at all, they try to deceive. Now, what's important about this particular verse, we'll talk a little bit about some of it next time together, is the meaning of the word deceive. Um, You know what the word deceive means? To deceive. But what you don't see in the definition is that the tense of the verb is that they continually try to deceive. In other words, they don't just try one time and like, I give up. They continually try to deceive those belonging to the Lord. All right? In fact, in 2 John verse 7, you have that same language. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Now, that's a problem doctrinally for us, okay? That's a problem as it relates to our hope. Because if we deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're in trouble, okay? Um, all right, so he says, Many deceivers have gone into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. In other words, those who have a false message. I want to leave you with some things and, you know... I'd love to sit down and talk with you, have a conversation about how my brain works. Um, but I don't have time right this moment. But as I'm reading through this and studying through it, there's really two segments within that particular section. One is talking about those opposed. And then John reminds them, as we're going to look at next time, hey, look, you're okay. You're okay, and this is why you're okay. We'll talk about that next time. But as I was thinking about deceivers and thinking about our culture, look, there are so many different religions we could point to that are against Christ, okay? We know that. But as I was thinking about the influencers today, it's not just the different religions that influence. Um, There are all these things called isms. That influence. And influence people to put other things in the place of Christ. You remember I said there's two definitions of the term anti. One is in opposition to, the other is in place of. And in place of Christ, if you just pay attention, you will see that the things I'm about to show you are absolutely a problem in the Christian world today. In fact, as I was Studying the first one, I'm like, listening a little better at the end of the week. And oh my goodness gracious, I was like, yeah, this is being propagated everywhere. Um, it's called individualism. Any of you studied any of this? There's a um, website called gotquestions.org. You need to write that down. It is a wonderful Christian website, gotquestions.org. The founder of it went to Dallas Seminary. He's a graduate of Dallas. It is a wonderful website. He has a lot of different contributors. But in here, he talks about all kinds of stuff. Very interesting to me. 
So as I was thinking about deceivers and I was thinking about our world, I wasn't thinking about all the different religions so much as I was thinking about some of these things that take, now listen to me, that are taking our young people away from Christ. They are. Individualism says that we should look inward. In other words, the focus is on me. Okay? While the gospel says we are to look outside of ourselves, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it is true that we consider ourselves. I'm not saying that at all. In Scripture, you're going to see men and women who consider themselves. But within, within the context of considering themselves, they consider the Lord. That's not what these folks are talking about. Okay? The conflict is that in an expressive individual, individualistic society, that message is counterculture. In other words... Looking to someone else outside of myself. Looking to Christ. That Christ is the answer. It's not myself. Because this is the way they package it up for our students. You ready? This is it. You're in charge of your world. You live like you want to live. You think like you want to think. Your reality is your reality. These are big influencers. I mean, I love the website because they're really up to date. He says, if one is asked to look up, then it implies that someone or something is outside of us and above us. Well, now what are we talking about? Accountability. Because if there's someone outside of us and above us that is in charge, who is this? Did you watch the video? These people have no idea who Christ is. Most of them do not know. And if they've heard his name, it's like the lady who says, I pray to Jesus. Well, that's good. But what's your complete theology as it relates to Jesus? Okay? Individualism encourages one to live my own truth. You ever heard of that? So the call to abandon one's own truth for someone else's truth, namely the Lord's, seems absurd. So this message, hey, listen, when we go up to a person and say, hey, you need Christ. You know, Christ will change your life. Why do I need him? I got, I got me. I'm good. I'm my own boss. I can believe what I want to believe. There's no consequence to my actions. And if I'm comfortable with it in my world, and I'm not bothering you, we're good. Because whatever you're comfortable with, I'm good with that too. So you believe what you believe, I'll believe what I believe. Well, the conflict is the Lord, of, excuse me, the call of the Lord is to live according to the truth of his word. <laughs> I just had, had this thought. What if you just walked down the street downtown, what's that railroad park? And, says, and just, just had a, a microphone and went down. Hey, you need to live according to this truth. Hey, don't you know you need to live according to the truth of the Bible? Try that. Let me know how it works out for you. We really ought to do that. Put together some surveys. So the primary message of me before anyone or anything feels wrong because I am no longer central in the equation. Does that sound like our culture? Absolutely. Almost done, guys. Secularism. Now this one bothers me in a lot of ways. Teaches that man is the measure of all things, that morals are are man-centered, not God-centered. In other words, whatever's right for me is right for me. Whatever's right for you is right for you. 
Therefore, no one is entitled to determine right from wrong. And morality is best determined by what is good for today's culture. I've heard that on many levels with many different students and adults. The conflict is that God has already determined what is right and wrong. <laughs> He's not waiting for like, oh yeah, Thad, I forgot I was going to give Thad some input. No, he ain't waiting for me. God is not waiting for man to make a determination. As well, right and wrong does not fluctuate. For example, God has said adultery is wrong. True? No matter what a progressive culture might determine. Now, I'll tell you something. This last weekend, I was listening. There's a, a big conflict going on in the NBA right now with the Boston Celtics. Okay, you can read about it this afternoon. The head coach of the Boston Celtics had an inappropriate relationship with someone inside the organization. I'm talking about it is if you don't watch the NBA or don't care, which most people don't, but there's a whole lot of people that do. Well, the me- you know what the message has been? And I've listened to it on the radio. Does it really matter what he did? It's his life. He determines what he wants to do. Well, we go on forever, and I'm not going to do that. All right. Secularism has removed the things of God from schools. True. Courtrooms and congressional hallways. This has naturally led to a culture with no moral absolutes, no values, no real standards. My friend, listen to me. We are in a spiral. I'm talking about big time spiral. Real quick, I remember when prayer was in school. I remember when it started our day at Brentwood Elementary. That would be a great thing to start up again. The conflict is a culture may remove God from a hallway or a courtroom, but that will not erase the fact that every individual will stand before the one they rejected on earth. Man, it's 11.58. I got one more. You all right with one more? I'm not taking a survey of everybody. All right. One more. This is how I think, though, this connects because... This is how I think we got to to this point. Certainly influence, and that's complacency. Complacency complacency is contentment with the status quo. It is contentment with the way things are, one's own spiritual life, one's own family, one's own church family. The conflict, if there is complacency in one's spirit, that should say in one's spiritual life, sin is crouching at the door. How critical is it that all of us are continually engaged with the Lord? By the way, this isn't from Got Questions. This one's from Thad Blunt. So is this one. Complacency in the family potentially leads to a confusion of roles within the home. True? True. And a slow but steady movement away from spiritual things. The problem, what our children need in the home is a clear picture of what the Lord requires for those belonging to Him. Fathers leading their home is critical to spiritual health. Mothers supporting their husbands and reinforcing the truth of God's word is critical as well. Complacency in the church comes from just being comfortable. Being comfortable has been a problem in the church during my lifetime. 
and has been exacerbated over the last few years, especially the last three. A lack of urgency to assemble has been on display for many to see. True? True. Conflict. How many examples in the Bible could we cite of men and women who were called to be uncomfortable for the Lord? Many. Believe, should have had a space there. Believers have been called to be faithful in assembling together. So those are just a few of my thoughts as it relates to what's going on in our world. Okay, Because there are a lot of things to think about that are against Christ and in place of Christ. Well, we're not having a closing song, so we're going to have a word of prayer, and then I'm going to let you get home. All right, let's pray. So, Father, thanks for our time together today. We thank you for your word that gives us guidance, and I pray that as we consider some of the things in our culture that are against Christ and in place of Christ, that we would be careful to determine where we are and how studied we are and how foundationally set we are. And as we have opportunities to run across different people who um, even have different beliefs, that we would be careful to point them to the truth. And we're so thankful, Father, for the opportunity to gather today. And I just pray that you would help us uh, this week as we have opportunities to speak for you, that we would. I thank you for everyone assembled today. And I pray if there's one even that's assembled today that's not uh, a part of the church that today could be the day of salvation and so we commit our day to you in the name of christ amen you are dismissed <laughs>